Welcome to this episode of Motherkind with me, your host, Zoe Blasky, sponsored by Stocker. This week, we have another community episode for you. This is the first one we've actually done this year where one of our incredible Motherkind community shares their story. This week is the story of Emily. I was so inspired by Emily's story. She is a young mum. She has faced unbelievable challenges with her daughter, and yet she is just a complete message of optimism and opportunity and self-compassion. I cannot wait for you to hear it. Here it is. Emily, I'm so excited to welcome you to this community episode of Motherkind. We had a chat before, was it a couple of months ago? And it was just absolutely delightful. You left me feeling inspired and smiling. So I can't wait to share to hear what you're going to share with our audience today. Thank you for having me on. Tell us a little bit, where are you? Tell us about your children. So I'm 22 at the minute. I'm in my final year of university. I'm studying clinical psychology um, and I have a four and a half year old, nearly five, should be five in March. So not many people I know in my situation, but yeah, we're just kind of I don't know what the word is, trying to manage the journey because she's had a lot of health complications in the past and she still has them. So we're just trying to kind of juggle that and find our way through everything that life has kind of thrown at us. So, yeah, you mentioned that thrown at you and you've had a lot, a lot thrown at you. Tell us, tell us about some of the, some of the challenges that you guys have faced. Actually, the day before Ivy's second birthday, we went into hospital because she'd been for a couple of months she'd been showing signs of being very tired she'd been kind of breathless and we had I'd actually taken her to the doctors and I think on the Thursday she had had some blood tests done but by before we could even get the results back we basically had to call up 111 because she was just breathing so so quickly and she was just so tired, not wanting to eat, not playing. And I think for me, it was kind of difficult to necessarily know at the beginning that that wasn't normal because obviously I don't have any other children to compare it to. So I don't know how many breaths per minute is normal for a child. So I called them up and they basically said we needed to take her to the urgent treatment centre. And I then got a call back saying we basically either needed to call an ambulance or go straight to A&E. I took her to A&E and basically it was kind of in the middle of COVID as well. So that was a whole other complication, but she basically had been seen. And as soon as they saw her, they just said, she's so poorly. Her oxygen levels were, I think she was like 80% saturated when it should be kind of 98 to 100. Um, So she had to have oxygen put in and there was just all alarms and everything going off because it was just beeping and she had a chest x-ray and that basically showed that her heart was enlarged but because she was so young they didn't have a paediatric cardiologist at the hospital we went to so we basically needed to be transferred but that obviously took a few hours and they had to put her on um, it was called an Optiflow, which is a high flow oxygen, but it's humidified, so it's not as drying, but it's this massive cannula. And she had 
both her arms kind of wrapped up in splints because she had cannulas in both her yeah just for all sorts of like blood tests and medications and we ended up getting transferred to Southampton because that's where they had a um, pediatric cardiologist and she had a an echo um, which basically showed that she has something called pulmonary hypertension we stayed there for about two weeks and she was moved through various kind of wards um, originally she was in the pediatric intensive care unit and then she was just she was moved out of intensive care but it was basically she needed to be transferred to Great Ormond Street because that's where all the specialists for pulmonary hypertension are but during that time we had a few difficult conversations with the doctors so I basically said to them like what does her future look like and the consultant was really brutally honest with me and she said a lot of children don't make it through childhood with this condition so I was sobbing luckily one of my friends was doing a placement at that hospital so I saw her and but there was because it was COVID there was a lot of difficulties with who could be in the ward only one person could be in the room with her but because of her kind of the severity of her condition we were actually some of the nurses like snuck my family in to see her which was sweet but again very difficult still so yeah like I said two weeks later we got transferred to Great Ormond Street again because of Covid we had to stay in a room we were really confined Ivy was still on the high flow oxygen where she was attached to the wall basically because that's where it would come from and only one parent was with her although her dad and I had separated by this point obviously it being on your own in that situation is quite challenging and I was still in uni as well at this point I had taken a bit of a break and I did my exams later that summer because I needed to do them to progress to the next year yeah so we were at Great Ormond Street and basically what we needed to do was try and figure out the etiology of the conditions like why does she have this but she was very very poorly and they said without any treatment she has weeks to months to live basically but they couldn't just blindly treat her because if they gave her the wrong medication it could make her condition worse they couldn't do a lung biopsy which is what they wanted to do because she wouldn't survive being put under anesthetic and originally so eventually they ended up doing a genetic screening so for me for Ivy and then for her dad as well um and basically she has a mutation called a TBX4 gene mutation that's kind of inherited from her dad's side and it's it gives all sorts of things so you're not guaranteed to get pulmonary hypertension from it so she has like flat feet and a big gap between one of her toes just random things that we always used to kind of joke about but it's actually because of this mutation. But then alongside the PAH, she also has interstitial lung disease. So there's kind of two aspects to it, which make it quite difficult for her. So she was put on oxygen and then all sorts of other medications as well. So all sorts of vasodilators. She was on um, like a nebulizer. She's been on so many medications that she's been amazing at taking bless her but yeah so she's it's been quite a journey she was on the lung transplant list because once we kind of found out what her diagnosis was and the cause of it they basically said she needs to have a lung transplant so she had a 50 percent chance of getting a transplant because of her size but she 
also only had was given a year to get the transplant as like her prognosis um so we just spent the whole year waiting waiting for the transplant which we ended up not needing so she responded really well to kind of steroid pulses and other medications so that's where we're at now she's actually off the oxygen at the moment it's with her condition it's kind of quite up and down so we really have to play it by ear but yeah she's at school which we didn't think I mean we didn't actually think she would be here so when I was in hospital at the first hospital I remember sitting down with my mum sobbing and she just said you are going to be an amazing mum but now just isn't your time because we just we didn't think that she'd come home with us she was so so poorly so just yeah it's a blessing to be where we are now and for her I mean she's at school at the minute so and how did you cope through all that I do you know what I actually don't have an answer for that I think in those situations you just go into survival mode like your body can take so much more than you think it can which I don't think it should and I'm actually really suffering the consequences of that burnout now but I just did it because I had to like I I look back now and I have absolutely no idea how I kind of got through the every night night after night giving her the medications being woken up by nurses coming in to do her observations it was very stressful but my cortisol levels must have been just through the roof and I think it wasn't until once we come out of that and things with her had got a bit more stable that I actually realized what it was like but I just you just do it because you have to do it there's no I mean that I would have probably done it a slightly better way if I look back and you know off had more support and allowed myself to feel the emotions a bit more but that's only something I'm starting to tap into now because it's I just was so overwhelmed that the thought of her you know dying and having to deal with that was so incredibly overwhelming that if I had even started that I wouldn't have been able to cope so I just didn't basically it's often the way isn't it that we hold it together until the other person's okay or the situation has changed and then the then the release comes and how are you doing now I think considering she's been stable for a while I've been less hypervigilant and able to take a bit more focus into my life. So like uni, my friendships, relationships, it's kind of less focused on carer and medications and it's more mum, if that makes sense. But yeah, I mean, there's so much stuff just going on trying to manage uni. I'm doing my final year project. So it's... I suppose that's how it's changed but yeah I think I'm always slightly on edge and there are times when I'm kind of reminded by everything and that's when I give myself time to be upset so I kind of instead of being sad every single day and crying about what is likely going to happen at some point I just give myself times to feel like that so I can kind of have a balance of letting myself be upset and processing it and also living my life and enjoying the time that I do have with her. I think it kind of maybe starts off as a coping mechanism. And then, you know, I've done years and years and years of therapy for all sorts of things. So I do have that space where I can talk about it. But 
I know that it's something that I need to work through at some point. And as much as I love to be optimistic and think about the possibility of medications advancing and treatments and stuff, which of course they always are, I don't want to be delusional and I need to keep myself almost emotionally secure enough to know that, you know, there is inevitably going to be a point where I outlive her and I do have to come to terms with that. But also it's easy because of knowing that to put pressure on myself to enjoy every moment, if that makes sense. So it's like there are countless times where I've been putting her to bed and she's just been being a four-year-old basically and I go no you have to enjoy this like you have to love it you have to treasure every moment but actually I don't just because I'm in this situation doesn't mean that I suddenly can enjoy every moment because I actually don't I mean I'm absolutely amazed by her and she gives me so much strength and she is just absolutely amazing but she is also again a four-year-old and she can be a bit annoying at times as well so I think you saying that will just give everyone listening so much permission because it's impossible to joy every moment, isn't it? I mean, it's it's just it's just a ridiculous, it's a ridiculous phrase, and it's a ridiculous pressure to put on ourselves. And you talked about emotional stability. What what does that look like for you? And how do you get that? I know that you're also studying this, aren't you? So any sort of professional insights to share as well? I'm not sure I'm actually qualified enough yet to give those kind of insights. I think. Something that I really struggle with, but I am learning to do is accepting help and asking for help. One thing that I have improved at massively is my boundaries. And something that I actually learned from you is when you were saying that in a relationship, you would almost, if somebody can't hold something or someone can't do what you're asking them to do, you would much rather them just say no than them resent you for do you know what I mean? Like for accepting something and it being too much. So I think I've definitely taken that where I will tell people no, and I will set my own boundaries, which massively protects me. Um, I do a lot of breath work. I've done it for years and it's taken years for me to actually see the benefits of it, but I can actually see Ivy kind of, um, picking up on that now so I do it in a slightly different way for her but I tell us like blow out 10 candles which is actually quite good practice for like one of her lung function tests that she has to do where she has to blow and it measures you know lung capacity and stuff so I think that and stimulation of like the ventral vagus nerve and all of that stuff but I think it's a very personal thing what helps everybody but just giving yourself grace and time. And one thing I think that I have learned to do is try and take the pressure off of myself a little bit. And I've said, I said this to you when we had our first conversation, which was you cannot hold everything and be the best at everything. No one else is carrying your hand of cards and you cannot excel in each of those aspects individually you are the best at carrying your load and that is enough and I used to put so much pressure on myself to do for example like to be great at uni whereas no one in my that I know of at my university I'm sure there's people in other places is in my situation not only with a child but with a poorly child and like it got to the point where so we I have a lot of care for example 
I don't know if you've heard of Helen House Hospice, but it's basically a hospice for children and they are absolutely incredible. But we'll so we'll go there and they have all sorts of facilities for respite or for play or just literally anything you can think of. And I had a bit of coursework to do. I think it was in my second year. And bearing in mind when we went to this the hospice, they give you a tour of all the different rooms. So there's um, apartments for parents to stay in. There's arts and craft. There's outside, but there's also a cold room, which is after the children pass away, they can store the body there, and the parents are allowed to then kind of look after the body at the beginning, which is absolutely like devastating and heartbreaking. But it's an amazing facility, and it brings a lot of closure to families. I think. But I was in there and I knew that all of this, you know, was my future probably because it was when Ivy was still on oxygen and she was really poorly still. And I went upstairs and I thought, I have to get my coursework done. So the nurses looked after her so I could have a bit of a break. But what I did with that break is I went and I did my coursework and I put so much pressure on myself. And I got a first in that piece of coursework, but it wasn't until after that. I was like, why did I, why am I putting so much pressure on myself? Because it's actually not good for me and I don't need to be the best in each of those domains of my life I just need to carry and choose what's important to me and just do what I can because good enough is absolutely good enough and that's something I tell myself on a daily basis yeah I mean well done on the first it's absolutely mind-blowing to me that you were able to do that but I think you're you're so right. And I think Rick Hansen said this to me about d- the decathlete. And he said, you have to remember that we're not in a single sport Olympics. We're in a 10 sport Olympics. And it's probably actually a hundred, isn't it? If we really think about it. And can we just be good enough at each of those? Yeah, that's, that's where I got it from. And it has just been, I every exam season, every time I have coursework, I just like say that to myself again and just because someone else might be excelling in this particular area like something that you're also doing doesn't mean that you can compare yourself to them because they have different cards they have different resources they might have more sleep they might have more help like you just don't know the situation so you cannot compare and I think even taking that analogy and putting it just into motherhood is even if one of your cards is motherhood and you put all of your energy into being the best mum you possibly can, motherhood is broken down into like millions of different parts. Like, and it, I think it really depends on what your values are and what's important to you about what you focus your energy on. So you might be, you know, you might think about really nutritious, healthy foods or being outdoors a lot or emotional validation. There's just so many different aspects to it and none of them are wrong but it's personally what is important to you and you cannot do all of them perfectly. Like I probably do more emotional validation than I do going on the floor and bopping around a little toy in the toy house, but it's, that's what's important to me. And obviously I have my reasons for that just as everybody has their reasons for their own priorities but I think it's so easy to look at somebody else and say, oh my God, they're making bread and jam from scratch. Like I should be doing that. And it's just not true. And it's not fair to put that kind of pressure on yourself. 
And something that I've noticed, which I don't know if it's true for you or anybody else, but I think I compare myself to an ideal self that I, like my potential, given all the best, like optimal situation and the best resources. So the most sleep, the most childcare, the most support, the most like financial stability, I think, well, in that situation, I could do it. So why am I not doing it now? And just because I can do something or just because someone is capable of doing something in a certain situation does not mean that they should be doing it now because chances are you haven't got the optimal situation to be doing that. Like Hormones are unbalanced and there's stress and financial stress and work and sleepless nights. It's just so easy to compare yourself to that, like your potential self, but it's a really unfair comparison so wise and it's so true and I think just hearing you speak I just feel so in awe really if that doesn't sound patronizing it's not meant to I just I just really feel in awe of how your attitude and your insight and your clear intelligence and how you're able to live with such a deep paradox I find I find really inspiring and I know that everyone listening will as well. And I always ask this question at the end, which is if you could give just one gift to all the mothers in the world, what would that one gift be and why? Do you know what? Ever since I've listened for about four years now, I I always have thought about this and I agree with every single one every single time, but I've always been so glad that I actually don't have to answer it. obviously now I do and I think even with every single one of the gifts that each person has given I don't think I think it will only start to scratch the surface of what we need so I don't think there's one answer but from me I would probably say just getting rid of the negative comparison to other people and to that ideal self I think it's such a thief of joy and it's so unfair and you could be having the most amazing day but comparing yourself to somebody else or a different situation or where you could be if the situation was different um so yeah just taking that away I think would bring a lot of peace that's beautiful and I completely agree with you it really would oh Emily thank you for your time thank you for so honestly and bravely sharing your story I I really appreciate it. And I'm so grateful that you are in the Mother Kind community. Thank you. 